Tim Haig Reads Books, presented by Tim Haig. Can government action fix a broken economy? Eighty years ago, John Maynard Keynes and Friedrich Hayek arrived at diametrically opposed answers to that question. Far from being a dry and technical academic argument, it was then and is now the central division within political economy. The story of the row between these men is explosive and astonishingly bad-tempered. Bring up the subject with any politician or social scientist, and they will be aware of the story. But only now has anybody written the book. That anybody is Nicholas Wapshot, and Tim met him at his London publishers to talk about the economics and the politics and the personalities involved, bringing it right up to date to consider how Keynes and Hayek would have addressed the present difficulties. This is Tim Hayek reads books, and let's have a look at today's Keynes Hayek: The Clash That Defined. Modern Economics by Nicholas Wapshot. Well, that's a suitably ambiguous title. It could not be clearer. We're talking about Keynes and Hayek. So um, I doubt there's anybody listening to this who isn't aware that Keynes was perhaps the highest profile economist of the 20th century. Probably we all know who Hayek was, and uh, some of us even read The Road to Serfdom when we were students. But on a, on a, a more important, deeper level, who were they? Why, why are we squaring these two figures up against each other? These are two guys who fell out with each other 80 years ago and had a very public scrap. Uh, it was dual by, of all things, learned journal. It doesn't sound very promising, but they were so spiteful and bitter and uh, sarcastic towards each other that the whole academic community was scandalised. They were fantastically bad-tempered, weren't they, in print? I mean, I, 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 you, you quote some of the things that, uh, where they're responding to each other, and you'll have Hayek saying something like, uh, if, if, uh, if Mr Keynes had, uh, had bothered to find out exactly. about these theories, he'd be a little better informed, he'd know what he was talking about. And, but in, in academic terms. And you think, well, this is fighting talk. It's amazing they didn't thump each other. Absolutely. Well, they were gentlemen in the end. Uh, they ended up being frenemies, actually. I mean, very good friends. When finally the LSE, which is where Hayek was, uh, was bombed out of its premises in the war, they went up to Peterhouse. The whole lock, stock and barrel faculty went up there. And Keynes said, oh, Friedrich, you won't like the rooms at Peterhouse. Let me find you some rooms in King's College. So they ended up actually rather warm-hearted and friendly. But uh, at the beginning of the 30s, this is 80 years ago almost exactly, is when they were fighting. And what they were fighting about turns out to be absolutely topical today. It's exactly the same argument. And that is, to what extent or, in fact, should ever governments intervene when a, an economy is broken, like it is today? And it was back in the 30s, of course, ahead of the Great Depression. And here, of course, we've just managed to see off a Great Recession. And it's the same thing. And this, this for you, is, is the big divide. It's, it's um, intervention, government intervention versus... Well, free markets, I would say. Non-action, in action perhaps, but free markets. And that, for you, is, is the big question. Because it always seems to me, when, uh, especially reading the book and, and their exchanges, they're almost like two men, who, who is, one of whom is saying, uh, the sky is blue, and the other one's saying, uh, actually, I think you'll find the grass is green. No, no, the sky is definitely blue. You're a fool, the grass is green. And it, it's almost as though they're talking about completely different uh, Subject it's true. One they, was, one they, was, they miss each other. One was arguing apples, the other was arguing pears. And the fact is that you can't have these both worlds. They, they, this is, after all, conceptual. What they're trying to do is understand how an economy works. And Friedrich Hayek said, there's very little you can understand about economics apart from maybe price levels. He was Strangely, for such an intellectual man, his conclusion was that actually you couldn't discover very much about your discipline, which is an extraordinary thing to do. Keynes was very different. He was not so much a theoretician, actually, as a pragmatist. He genuinely wanted to cure unemployment. He thought it was unnecessary. 
and that governments had a duty to step in to the economy, uh, if necessary, and put people back to work. Uh, to that extent, of course, they, they again were very di- different sorts of people. Keynes was a hugely optimistic man. Uh, always, when he, whenever he came across something which was uh, disappointing to him, he just turned over leaf and moved on. Hayek uh, was a pessimistic fellow, uh, very insular, uh, liked to be an outsider, liked to be a contrarian, and stood outside of society and said, really, scientists should just describe these things. They shouldn't get involved. Do you think that was a, a, a personality thing, a temperamental thing, or is it a function of, of where they developed their obsessions? They're both desperately worried about totalitarianism. They're both terribly worried that the, the circumstances they find themselves in will lead to some kind of totalitarianism. But for Keynes, he's observing the unemployment of the 1930s. For Hayek, he's uh, fretting ab- about the, the inflation that wiped out his family's wealth. It, is that, I mean, can, can you put much, much uh, yes, you can. weight he, on? Keynes was a man, uh, extraordinarily privileged, went to Eton, King's College. His father was a don at Cambridge. Uh, they came from a very comfortably well-off family altogether, and he had a sense of noblesse oblige. He was appalled not so much by the Great Depression, which hadn't even started yet. He was appalled by mass unemployment in the 20s. And he, he said the economic theories uh, suggest that there's meant to be an equilibrium at which everybody is employed. Well, after 10 years, it ain't happening, is it? In which case, something is going wrong. I'm going to find out what it is that's going wrong, then I'm going to find out a way to fix it. And for Hayek, returning from the Great War uh, back to his home in Vienna, he discovered that the Austro-Hungarian Empire had fallen apart. Austria was now a headless torso, a capital without an empire to it, and he found his parents shivering in their apartment, grand apartment, uh, sitting in overcoats, unable to afford fuel because inflation had taken off. Uh, and, I mean, he was not himself quite uh, the person who took money home in a wheelbarrow, but he knew all about it because he, had a, he worked for the government and had an inflation-adjusted uh, salary, which at least insulated him. But for the rest of his time, he thought that inflation was the most important thing. And when you come to the modern argument, you'll find it exactly the same today, even between Labour and Tories, that Labour... Uh, party on the whole is very worried about people who are not in work or people who fell out, fall out of work and can never get back on the jobs list. Whereas uh, the Conservative Party uh, always heralds, uh, whoopee, we've got a reduction in inflation, notwithstanding the fact we've also got vast numbers of unemployed. Well, I was going to come back to that because it, 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 you, you suggest that Hayek never did lose his belief in equilibrium and that there would be or there could be in principle a point at which and uh, an economy was in equilibrium with full employment. Um, all our experience is uh, is that that's not true, that you can have equilibriums in which there's high unemployment. But presumably, Hayek would say, that's because you're interfering. And he, if you'd left things long enough, perhaps 80 years, mm. then the economy would have sorted it out. And Hayek would presumably still, if he was alive today, would still be arguing that. Yes, he would. Uh, and he lived a very long life, and he stuck to his last all the way. Uh, what he was suggesting was that if you were to reduce the state to a minimum altogether, uh, you keep the government to absolutely its basics. So he defended the borders and not much else, did a bit of policing. Uh, he insisted there should be regulation, by the way, that in order to ensure a free market... Uh, you shouldn't allow... It, he wasn't completely laissez-faire. It wasn't devil take the hindmost. He said, let's put up a structure so that there would be competition which would give the benefit to the consumers. But if you did all that and you left it long enough, the markets would clear and you would end up with a form of 
conservative or libertarian utopia where everybody was amazingly well-off, employed, and so on. The fact is that it's an experiment that no one has dared try to bring about. He was very concerned with what he always called... um, uh, Freedom or democ- democracy or something like that, and or, or um, because he felt that the, the way that uh, individuals express their, their uh, themselves democratically is through the price mechanism. That that was the golden thing for him, and um, I, I mean it seems to me a very personal view of uh, what freedom and democracy are, because some people would think democracy is being allowed to vote. Hayek always said that if you vote for a government, if you have an elected government, it will always tend to increase its size because it will respond to electoral demands. And I'm, I'm reminded of, um, do you remember what Anatoly France said about, uh, about the, the um, majestic indifference of the law, which allows rich or poor alike to sleep under bridges and beg in the streets and steal bread? And of course, that that surely is true for, for um, economic actors as well. If you are unemployed, if you have no economic power, you're disenfranchised. What would Hayek have said about that? Well, he said they wouldn't be unemployed for very long. By the way, he also said that there should be uh, basics, which is, I must say, uh, just parenthetically, people who talk about Hayek and talk about the road to and very often haven't read it. There's a very key element in what Hayek was suggesting. He said, yes, let's withdraw the state from everything, but at the same time, let's make sure that everybody in society is well looked after. He was a very civilised man and could not contemplate the wretched poor being on everybody's doorstep. So he said there should be universal health care, there should be generous provision of a social safety net for people, and that everybody should be provided with a home, uh, which, of course, let Keynes... Sounds like socialism to me. Well, exactly. So, uh, exactly, the the Bible of uh, the libertarians actually contains when it sees a socialism, which, of course, when... uh, Hayek sent a, an early copy of The Road to Serfdom to Keynes, who read it whilst he was uh, going over on the ship to the Bretton Woods Agreement, mm. one of the many things... I mean, you know, Keynes had Huge tw- figure, 12, yes. 12 lives simultaneously. Mm. One, of, one of the many things that just fell out of his back pocket was the Bretton <laughs> Woods Agreement. And he read it, and he said, you know, dear Friedrich, you've written a really important book. I'm so glad that you've raised these very important issues. I'm most impressed. But I did notice that you said that... Uh, in a civilised society, we need these three important elements to keep absolutely everybody involved and to be fair to everybody. So in which case, why aren't we talking about just where you draw the line between the state sector and the private sector? In which case, I agree with you. It's interesting, isn't it, that uh, The Road to Serfdom, the, the book that, that defines uh, Hayek in most people's minds, including Mrs Thatcher and uh, Ronald Reagan, um, is, is actually sort of the least economic of his books. It's, it's much more a, a, a philosophical Thing than, than a, That's right. He started, th- this duel started off as an economic one between what was uh, Keynes's uh, burgeoning ideas, which would lead to the general theory, which actually would transform economics forever. Before then, it was Marshallian, so-called business economics, mm. if you like, basic stuff about price and demand, uh, uh, supply, and all, uh, just the basic building blocks, the grammar of economics. But after the general theory in 1936, everybody understood the economy as a whole, as a whole machine working together with moving parts in it, and that's macroeconomics. And the Austrians have still never quite come to terms with macroeconomics, even though everybody who learns economics today, between 1936 and the present day, and way into the future, they are all studying and understand macroeconomics. everybody's using as well. All all the the, the avowed Hayekians are using macroeconomics. You make the point that effectively macroeconomics is an invention of Maynard Keynes that uh, before him that there was no such uh, discipline. 
Um, and in a way, that's what the, the, the grass and the sky argument is, isn't it? Because uh, Hayek would always have said you can only understand things from, from the bottom up. From, from, from microeconomic yeah. terms, yeah, exactly. But actually, having apparently lost that argument in the 30s, he then resumed the battle against Keynes with uh, a means of looking at the implications of what Keynesianism was. The thing about Keynes was, he said at the bottom of the business cycle, you can fill up the trough and put people back to work and prevent uh, factories going bust if you do a number of things. He said you must make sure that interest rates are predictably low for a long period. You should slash personal taxes so that people have money in their pockets to go out and spend. And as the spender of last resort, if the private sector is not spending, then the state should do it. They should build infrastructure and so on. Of course, there was a corollary at the top of the cycle. You should pay off the debt that you took out at the bottom of the cycle. That's the bit, that's the most, bit, that that's the bit which politicians find very hard to stick to. Yes. But, the, but, the, but the bottom, of course, free with every copy of the general theory, was a, a book of blank checks. And there's nothing politicians like doing better than spending your and my money. And so uh, for them, Keynesianism was a gift. And it was that that Hayek were very early spotted, that if you had people spending taxpayers' money on their own projects rather on what taxpayers would want, then there was a sort of deficit. And that individual rights were trammeled as what he called the planners, uh, government officials, politicians and so on, uh, spent like drunken sailors other people's money. What always seems to be missing to me in, in the Hayekian uh, view is a sort of psychology of economics. It's this, this notion that, that we are all uh, economic man, acting completely rationally with perfect uh, information and uh, with, with sort of equivalent uh, ability. And uh, he was obsessed with, with the relationship between saving and investment. Hayek always thought that if you save then that's the same as, a, as a, an act of investment. You, you, you tell us that Keynes exploded that by pointing out that there's a, a liquidity preference that some people will not say, it will save but not, not invest because they want to keep the liquidity option. And of course, it, it, on, on the sort of the, the, the personal level, we all know there are lots of reasons for saving. Um, we save not because the rates are good or bad, but because we have a sense of the future. You know, we, have, we want a pension. And your desire for a pension is not going to be significantly affected by the, the, uh, by the rate of inf- interest today. And so the, the psychology seems to be missing in Hayek. He seems never to, to consider what actual people do, only mm. the way they, the, the, the price He was overly logical. I mean, he was, I, I don't want to make a stereotype, but I think we all recognize the sort of crispness that comes out of uh, people who speak a Germanic language. There is somehow a sort of a passionless involved. They are so ultra-logical uh, that, uh, well, Keynes thought it, 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 it drove them to bedlam in the end, because if you take anything ad absurdum, you know, you end up in a real trough of despair. And I think that the opposite was true of Keynes. Keynes was passionately concerned about people mm. always. In his private life, he was a member of the Bloomsbury Group, very prominent member of the Bloomsbury Group, hugely aesthetic, collected pictures and so on, fell in love after half a lifetime of being a promiscuous homosexual. He then married a ballet dancer from the Ballet Russe. I mean, he was a very full-blossomed individual who was always concerned about humanity and where it should be. And if he saw humanity in distress, he wanted to fix it. But Hayek, it was a different thing. Hayek was merely looking at uh, people as if they were, I don't know, insects behind glass or uh, germs underneath a microscope. He actually wasn't particularly concerned. And if you see, there's quite a lot on YouTube, uh, well worth looking at, 
of Hayek being interviewed. Uh, he, well, he, he is a rather interesting and wonderful and rather droll character in the end, but my goodness. But his thinking was bloodless, wasn't it? It, it was totally, yes, totally bloodless. That's a great way of describing it. And, uh, and in a way, I think that that's the problem about politicians who take up Hayek. They tend to have to, uh, by using his logic, uh, suggest that they too don't really concern for people. Have, don't have concern for people. And that puts them at enormous disadvantage, well, of course, in the political Well, they do and they sphere. don't. You've got uh, Robert Lucas uh, quoted in the book that uh, everybody's a Keynesian in a foxhole. When, when the crisis happens, when there is uh, a cataclysm, and we've just, well, not, we haven't just had one, we, we are having one, one right now. Yeah, well, oh, we, I, don't think, I don't think we've missed we it. We missed the worst we, of it. I think we've postponed it. Yeah, okay. But we'll see how that works out. We'll come back in, in a couple of years and see which is <laughs> right. But this is it. Everybody is a Keynesian in a foxhole. You've got uh, George W. Bush, who avowed a sort of Hayekian outlook, who the moment the crisis hits, goes Keynesian. Yeah. Hugely. I mean, vast amounts of, of, of public money spent. Um, h- how would Keynes and Hayek have responded to the present crisis? Uh, yeah. Keynes would have been far more inventive, and he would have already given us six different solutions to it. A lot of it would be to do with um, actually wiping out debt, effectively, forgiving debt. Uh, This had happened in the 30s. As opposed to defaulting, which is what's going to As opposed to defaulting, yes. I mean, there was one stage where Keynes said, wouldn't it be just easier if we gave everybody a piece of paper saying that it was worth so many tonnes of gold? Let's give every country notional gold in a piece of paper, and they can spend it as they like, including paying off their debt. The fact is that... And, and this is true. He said, you know, if everybody holds hands and jumps off the cliff together, it turns out there is no bottom to this cliff, as long as everybody holds together. I think he would, he would plead with the G20 to come together, as they did immediately after the events of 2008-9, in order to find a common cause. What instantly happened, as soon as the, uh, the Great Recession was averted, and they were really looking over the precipice, had layman's been the beginning of the bank collapses, then the whole of the capitalist system would have fallen over the edge of the cliff, and we would have 50% unemployment in the United States with decades before we could ever get back to any normality. As it is, the people who have saved it, uh, including George W. Bush, but Obama, and actually Gordon Gordon Brown, Brown, Gordon Brown, who, of course, was produced. There was instant buyer's roar saying, oh, my goodness, because people, I can understand, it is very difficult to understand the Keynesian notion because it's based upon something which is contrarian, and that is, when you're in a a whole of debt, the best thing to do is borrow more. Mm. And that is the truth. And it's a horrible thing because people see around their kitchen tables, and you and I, quite rightly, in this current climate, what we would do is to pay down our uh, credit card debt as quickly as possible. It's what uh, I'm doing, yeah. Exactly. We would cancel all our expensive foreign holidays. Mm-hmm. We would uh, start living parsimoniously because we don't know next month or in six months' time we may not be employed, in which case we draw our horns in and uh, retreat into our shells But that is not what you do in a national economy. A national economy is very different. And the the politicians who, uh, they they deceive, deliberately deceive the electorate by playing the domestic economy game and use the terms of the domestic economy knowing full well or maybe they don't. Maybe, they, maybe they're just ignorant of economics, in well, which case they're, they're a liability. You know, you, you, in a way, you're almost describing Margaret Thatcher. And, and she and, and uh, Ronald Reagan were, after all, the great disciples of Hayek, both of them economically illiterate. Neither of them had any grasp. Although I was interested in your book, you've got, you've got Reagan as a, as a big reader and a thinker about economics, which mm. I find astonishing. Everything I ever knew or understood about Reagan was that he was 
utterly. I mean, if you, I know, you read true. David Stockman's book, the, uh, his budget director. I did indeed. Uh, in which Stockman said the man didn't understand the idea of inflationary dollars. He thought a dollar in one year was the same as a dollar. And that if you, if you want putting a, a project to Reagan, you had to put it on one sheet of A4. Because if you turned it over, he forgot what was on the other side. Yeah, well, I wrote a book about Reagan and Thatcher. You did, where, yes. where, where the Hayek, of course, is one of their common bonds. It's the reason when they first met uh, in 1975... Uh, Reagan and would start a sentence and Thatcher would finish it. They were absolutely on the same page when it came to these uh, sort of big theories. But it was visceral with them, wasn't it? It wasn't yeah. an intellectual understanding. No, well, I think, but mind you, I think most of us come to a point of view which is actually based on something which is visceral. I mean, why is somebody uh, who talks like me a conservative but other people who talk like me are Labour? The fact is we have very similar backgrounds or whatever. It's not an intellectual thing. It's not you don't... If you're bright, you choose one route and if you're dim, you choose the other. So what... It, how we come to our conclusions is a fascinating subject, which I must say is one of the things that has driven me to uh, look at uh, Reagan and Thatcher and people who actually I don't particularly agree with, but I find their point of view very interesting. Uh, and their, their dynamic is, is interesting. The, yeah. the, the, the passion with which they drove things forward. Was, yeah, but Reagan, Reagan was misunderstood, or as George W. Bush would say, misunderestimated. <laughs> and it's a, very, it's a very useful thing in politics if people think that you're a bit on the dim side. Mm -hmm. fact is that actually Reagan was very sharp. Sure, as time went on, uh, you know, he was an older man, and, uh, you know, he, his, he wasn't quite as sharp as uh, particularly in the early morning, or, you know, he used to take naps in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. I have every sympathy with that. Uh, but the fact is that he was a great book learner, and that was because he had a fear of flying, yet he had a job with General Electric, which meant that he had to go to factory after factory across the United States, pepping people up. Uh, and so on those uh, long journeys, he would read serious-minded books. He just didn't read airport thrillers and beach thrillers, you know, and chick-lit stuff. He read serious-minded books. He had himself an economics degree, in fact, in the first place. Of course, it was pre-Keynesian. That was his age. Uh, so he may be excused, in a way, for not quite catching up with, uh, with the way the world had changed. But in Hayek, he, was, he became much more concerned about the size of the state. And that, for, for him, for Reagan, it was to do with his wartime experience when he saw that when there was a more or less command economy in those dark days uh, from between the late 30s and the end of the war, uh, that the, uh, the real regular economy didn't apply. It was being run by the army and so on. And he just saw people wasting money, wasting resources, wasting time, and he said that that's because the state actually can't really run anything. In and private hands, a, it's always done shit. truly Hayekian It is, absolutely, it? and it's sort of true, actually, on the whole. Uh, and, and I think Mrs. Thatcher was right, too, you see, looking back on it, uh, and Labour should have been much sharper. I, I wouldn't call it Blairite, but the, they should have been much earlier. Perhaps in even Harold Wilson's time, they should have worked out that Really, you shouldn't have the steel industry. There's no need for the steel industry to be owned by the state mm -hmm. or British Rail owned by the state or uh, bus transport. I mean, endless things which were, which were privatised by Mrs Thatcher. It turned out to be, and Wilson onwards must have known that, Jenkins certainly knew it, was that it was, it didn't, the ownership was not the key, mm -hmm. as it turned out, to the way that it uh, prospered. Regulation probably was the key. And that's much more Hayekian too. But... Uh, when it comes to the big picture of how to avert a crisis or how to get us out of this hole, I'm not sure that Hayek is particularly useful because what he's talking about is infinity. You know, we've got all the time in the world. It will eventually sort itself out if only we can get president or prime minister all in a line, all agreeing exactly with this same notion of where we're heading. Well, that's not going to happen. And Keynes' right. response would probably be, but we've got people right now who need to get on with their lives, and they don't have. They haven't got a life. Exactly. In the long term, we're all dead. 
he yes, famously he, said. He and it's true. And I must say, the older you get, the more you realise that's true. And I, I get very impatient with people who say, uh, in, uh, both in Europe and here, saying, oh, well, you know, it might be a decade or two decades of austerity. As Do we me speak, a only yesterday, there was me me Mervyn King was on the radio uh, being, being interviewed and saying, well, you're just going to have to be patient. And anybody who is unemployed or who uh, is, is desperate f- to start their life in some way, I can't be patient. I need. I have one life, and I yeah. want to leave it, lead it as fully as possible. And in a modern age, as we have all of the equipment that means that uh, uh, you can fix this economy, uh, to deliberately cause... I mean, the government is, the British government is talking about deliberately causing 740,000 government workers be unemployed in the course of five years. It hasn't even started, really, in earnest that. That's hell of a lot of people because each there's a multiplier effect you know that doesn't isn't just with spending there's a multiplier too with unemployment because every father and mother that's unemployed puts the children at disadvantage and so on and if you if you don't get a job too aged 16 or 18 when it, or 21 whenever you leave your uh, education and you have half a generation or a generation five years how, down how long the are we line, talking about a, you're, you're a, 23 and there's and another 18 year old coming along who and you've never job. you've never had that discipline that Protestant work ethic of getting up in the morning and doing you know, a job you may not like to do, doesn't matter. As long, if it pays okay, then you'll do it. But to hang around in bed or to go off to the job centre, knowing full well that there are no jobs to get, to go through that hoopla is immensely depressing. So the, the policy right now is not only wrong right now, but it's wrong for the future too, and it'll rebound, I would suggest. Your final chapter is called "And the Winner Is." Are you able to? Uh, to no, come I will down say that you know it's a bit like you know this isn't a game of jeopardy. There's no right or wrong. These are just two conflicting notions of how mm. the world should run. Uh, the winner, at right at the moment, I, I'm, I'm amazed. This is a sort of tortoise and hare thing. Keynes sprinted off, uh, even though he was dead. The, the ghost of Keynes sprinted off, giving us between 45 and 75. Three decades of, in the Western world, unrivaled prosperity. Mm. Keynesianism was extraordinary. The Keynesians didn't actually do Keynes a great favour because they sort of misapplied it in the end, or the, you know, they kept their foot on the gas a little too long at the wrong places. However, Keynes did amazingly well. What I'm fascinated by is what the man who really was just a footnote, in, as he is in the Robert Skelton's brilliant three-volume Life of Keynes, and in Roy Harrod's wonderful Life of Keynes mm. too, Hayek's just you know, a footnote, a passing figure, but it actually turns out that Hayek's single idea is so uh, powerful that actually it it has governed the the debate, it dictates the debate today. And if you look at the American debate, this great uh, farce... uh, The Tea Party. The reality TV show that the GOP has become. Each one of those uh, candidates mouth the words of Hayek. They say, smaller government, pay off the debt. Isn't it fascinating that the Republicans cannot come up with a remotely credible figure. They're all swivel-eyed nutcases, uh, except for the one they're going to end up with, who they don't want. Yeah, we're in a strange position where the only candidate who has only one wife is the Mormon, which always strikes me as rather weird. Uh, but it's true. And um, Romney, who doesn't believe in anything much, I don't no. think, apart from no. Mitt Romney, uh, so he's willing to stand on his head in a, you know, in a bucket of whatever if, if he, in order to get elected. Uh, but the fact is that the Conservatives and Libertarians hate him so much. What's, what's happened to the Republican Party, actually, is very like what had happened to the Labour Party in, in a, a great amount of the 70s. They've actually enjoyed entryists. It's no longer a Conservative Party. They're a collection of Libertarians, mm. all, of, for who, all of whom uh, the road to serfdom is the Bible and uh, Hayek is a god. 
And what they are, they're just absolutists. They will not allow anything to happen that doesn't go in their sort of checklist. I agree. I mean, I already know what's going to happen in the next uh, presidential election, which is that Mitt Romney will be the Republican candidate. The Tea Party will not turn out for him because they can't bear him. He's, he, he believes in health care. Uh, the the right-wing uh, religious nutters will not vote for him because he's a Mormon, and Obama will romp home. And I, I, the Republicans seem not to be able to see that's what's going to happen. Mm. Well, it's certainly going to be a Keynes-Hayek election in November. Because what Obama, he's already given a trillion-dollar stimulus to the economy. He's been prevented by the Tea Party members within Congress from instituting a second uh, stimulus of half a trillion, which is uh, what he calls his jobs bill. Uh, the only question is, actually, not so much whether Obama's going to win, I think, but whether Obama gets enough people in Congress on his side to get past the supermajority you now need uh, in order to pass anything through the Senate. Uh, because the... The Tea Party has changed democracy fundamentally in America. It used to be representative democracy. That is, you, you uh, elected someone who then, on behalf of all the people in his constituency, made his own decisions or her decisions about exactly way, the, way, the best way forward. Now, the Tea Party have got people to write down pledges. I will not vote for anything which raises taxes. I will not vote for anything which extends universal health care and so on. So it's become a session not of representatives but of delegates. This is like the Soviet uh, democracy. This is where you send people in order to tow the party line. To do as they're told. Do yes. as they're told. And, and that fundamental change, uh, unless the Americans wise up to it, uh, will completely cripple the economy because, uh, uh, and cripple the political system because it's set up to be divided in the, in the French, after a French 18th century fashion. And if one side decides not to play ball, then yeah, you're doomed. The government can do nothing. Well, we've drifted ever so slightly away from um, your book. Um, there is quite a lot of, uh, of, of detailed economics in it, but you wear it very lightly. I, I don't think there's any problem with, uh, with reading and, and getting, because there's nothing bloodless about this book, Keynes Hayek, The Clash That Defined Modern Economics. It's a very lively story and, and extremely timely as you can tell it's, uh, it has immediate resonance for right now. So, uh, Nicholas Wapshop, thank you very much indeed. That was uh, terrific. It was a great pleasure. Thanks. Keynes Hayek, The Clash That Defined Modern Economics by Nicholas Wapshot is published by W.W. Norton at £18.99. Tim Haig Reads Books is a Green Shoot production. You can find out more at www.green-shoot.com and Tim can be contacted on tim at green-shoot.com. <laughs>